Welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. This is your bonus episode for May 2022. Now, I want to talk about Francis David Nichol, an Adventist fundamentalist who edited the Adventist Review and the SDA Bible Commentary, among other works. And I want to talk about Nichol as an Adventist fundamentalist and do something of a character study on him. People often talk about fundamentalists as a faceless movement of just these grumpy Christians. And often enough, Christians have been hurt by grumpy Christians, and they see the justice in heaping a little shame on fundamentalists, okay? I've done a little of that myself on this show when it came to Judson Washburn and Claude Holmes, arch avenous fundamentalists, if ever there were some. But I thought that examining the life of one such fundamentalist would help humanize fundamentalism for us, put a face on it, give it a pulse, help non-fundamentalists to understand where fundamentalists came from, and to help current fundamentalists to realize that they have other options <laughs> should they want a different path. Now, I suppose I'm always worried when any one group in history begins to be seen as evil personified by just about everyone. We often pile so much opprobrium on these people that they just they become aliens and we can't understand what's wrong with these people why would they ever make the choices that they made right they're just they're they're entirely other we do that with the nazis don't we i mean who doesn't love beating up on the nazis we can no longer however understand why they chose what they chose and to me that's a, when we get to that point we're failing in our mission to understand history. Now, this doesn't mean we're going to agree with everything we read, okay? It doesn't mean there actually isn't uh, some evil done in history. Of course there is. But if we allow our reaction to obscure our ability to relate, then it means that we're not going to learn anything. So I think my task as someone who loves history is to help prevent that from happening. Not to save fundamentalism, not to redeem fundamentalism, but simply to remind us, hey, we're in danger of no longer understanding it. Now, now that I've sold you on this episode thesis, I want to say that this is not the episode we are going to do today. <laughs> sure, I tried to write this episode um, about Nickel. I, but this other thing came out and I found myself wrestling with the foundational question of what is a fundamentalist exactly and the more that I explored that question the less room I had to actually talk about nickel I mean it just ends up being a footnote at the end of the episode now the question of what a, is a fundamentalist would make a great blog post that's probably how this episode should have ended up but I thought that it might be fun to show you the agony of words and their meanings and how they sometimes help us to understand the past and how they sometimes can obscure our understanding of the past. Choosing words is a very careful endeavor, especially if, you're, if your goal is to help people understand a particular person or movement or whatever. And fundamentalism is probably one of the greatest examples, in, in at least in recent Christian history, of how difficult words can be to define but I, I wrestled with this whole concept of defining fundamentalism for a while 
I, I think I made a little bit of progress. Maybe it's progress only to me. Okay, I'm, I'm open to that being the, the reality here. And, and when I got to the end of this episode, I thought I was done writing. But then a, a question occurred to me. The question would be an interesting test of my definition. It's a provocative question. It's a relevant question, I think. And after I had finished writing this episode, I just went out mowing my grass like any normal person. And then the question occurred to me. Okay, Matthew, your loose working definition of fundamentalism is all good and well. But what I want to know is, was Ellen White a fundamentalist? This episode went sideways when I started reading Gil Valentine's new book, Ostriches and Canaries. Gil spends a little time appreciating Michael Campbell's 1919 book, but ultimately disagrees with Michael on the issue of Adventist fundamentalism, at least in terms of who are the Adventist fundamentalists. Whereas Michael argues that fundamentalism was something Adventists adopted, Gil says that Adventists have always been fundamentalists. And in the scheme of things, it's a seemingly small point. The kind of thing professional academics discuss, like Star Trek fans discuss the efficacy of the Prime Directive. In case you're wondering, I'm not a Star Trek fan, but you get the point. No one outside the circle really cares. It's just something that professionals, you know, talk about. Nobody really pays attention. Nobody really cares. It doesn't really impact, at least at least not not directly, uh, the rest of our lives. And yet I think there's something at stake in this conversation, and what's at stake here is how Adventists understand their past. Michael Campbell's perspective is that the fundamentalist era brought a, what I call, a fundamentalist shift from which Adventism has never fully recovered. And I would say uh, haven't fully recovered largely because many Adventists today think fundamentalist Adventism is original Adventism. They don't see that a shift happened, which, for example, ended up seeing fewer women in positions of leadership in the church. These modern, conservative Adventists might assume women had always had fewer positions of leadership in the church and that this is the way the church was built and this is the way the church ought to be. But once we realize that a fundamentalist shift happened, modern Adventists can work to clear out the rubble, so to speak, and rediscover original Adventism. Now, Gill's perspective, at least as far as I've read in his book, is that Adventism has always been fundamentalist. And so for Adventism to make progress, we're, 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 we, we got to look forward. We must make progress away from those fundamentalist tendencies of the pioneers, and, and, you know, look, Gil lives in California, teaches at, or taught at La Sierra. And so I, I greatly appreciate his work. I, I really do. I love his writing. But when I read this part of, uh, of Ostriches and Canaries, I was reminded of something another Californian, Nancy Murphy, had written. Quote, inhabitants of liberal territory tend to believe that the Christian world is made up only of themselves and fundamentalists. End quote. <laughs> now, I don't know if this statement applies to Gil. <laughs> Uh, I was just reminded of it when I was reading his book, and I found it amusing. 
And hopefully we can get Gil on the show sometime and, and talk about all this. Now, I don't want to read too much into either of their positions, especially given that I haven't finished Gil's book yet. But their discussion helped me ask the question, how should Adventists relate to their past? Is it merely something to learn from and move on? Or are we trying to recover something from our past and adapt it for modern use? Or are we trying in some way to just get back to our past, right? To recreate it, to cosplay it. How does the Adventist past relate to the Adventist present and to the Adventist future? Now, I don't think I can answer all those questions yet, but I think that they are deeply interesting questions. And it's all wrapped up right now in how we see Adventist fundamentalism. Now, I don't think I'm breaking any news here when I say that there are still Adventist fundamentalists in Adventist churches today. To be sure, the larger fundamentalist movement is over. But the influence of Adventist fundamentalism is still with us. In part, because Adventist fundamentalists are still with us. But also because we live in an Adventist world which Adventist fundamentalists have largely made, or at least were influential in the making of, especially in the English-speaking part of the church. But we've also exported Adventist fundamentalism to many non-English-speaking parts of the world. And I think that's what happens when the golden age of missions and the age of fundamentalism happen at the same time. Now, Adventists cannot pretend that fundamentalism never happened, and no one really is. But the Adventist church was becoming something. It, it has become something. It wouldn't have been without fundamentalism. And that's why I think there's great value in excavating this time period. We have to understand what happened then so we can understand what's still happening today. And in order to do that, we have to understand what Adventist fundamentalism is. And that's wrapped up in the question, was Ellen White a fundamentalist? Gail would probably argue yes. Michael would probably argue no. And if Ellen White was a fundamentalist, what does that mean for those who, who respect her or revere her? Because if Ellen White was a fundamentalist, and if Ellen White remains a critical piece of Adventism, then in some ways to be Adventist is to be fundamentalist. Like There's going to be some fundamentalist components of our spiritual DNA that can never go away if all of these pioneers, including Ellen White, were fundamentalists. It's just who we are, and to abandon these sections of our DNA is to abandon sections of our Adventism. It's useless, then, to talk of leaving fundamentalism behind because it's just part of who we are. Sure, Adventism can change, Adventism can grow, Adventism can progress, it can leave some of this stuff behind, but if you leave Ellen White behind, you are leaving, I believe, something critical about being Adventist. Now, I think a lot of Adventists have a complicated relationship with Ellen White. Uh, there's definitely a number of ways to approach her. There's definitely a number of ways to appreciate her. But however you appreciate or approach Ellen White, I also don't exactly know what Adventism is without her. You know, and I don't want to get into all of that, right? But but just to put it in a short way, if nothing happened in 1844, if the if the if the three angels' message is just kind of built on some misunderstanding, 
if, um, you know, her ideas weren't really given to her by God, at least in a basic form. She wasn't inspired. You know, if, if all of these things, like the church was built on, 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 on some of these ideas, right? That, that the, that Adventists were, were raised up at the end of time to restore lost truths to the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, like I said, people have a complicated relationship. Adventists have a complicated relationship with that body of ideas right there. Some are going to accept it wholesale. Some are going to accept it with some modification. Some, um, you know, will 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 reject it all. But I think if you're in the camp of rejecting all of that, then then what are we as Seventh Day Adventists? Why are we here? Why are we not something else? So I, I think that's a really intriguing conversation. It's way too big for this episode. But it's enough for me to say at this point that I, I think, boy, just to kind of amputate that part of our history, it, it, you're going to lose something. Now, maybe some people are okay with losing that, but you're going to lose something. If Ellen White was a fundamentalist, um, we have to face that because we might not be here today without her. We very likely wouldn't have all these schools and hospitals and churches all around the world uh, without her influence. And so we can we can we can reject fundamentalism and say it's wrong. We can accept fundamentalism. We we can negotiate it in some other way. But we have to face that fundamentalist past. Now, on to definitions. You'll be happy to know that defining fundamentalism is really hopeless. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Okay, no. My favorite definition is by the historian George Marsden in his classic work, Fundamentalism in American Culture, where he writes that, quote, a fundamentalist is an evangelical who is angry about something, end quote. (laughs) I just love that so much. It's not a very helpful definition, but it's my favorite definition. Like I said, defining fundamentalism is really a hopeless because it's such an it's such an imprecise term to describe what really was a pretty chaotic historical movement. Fundamentalism, it, it just it caused a lot of heat. It, it blew a lot of smoke. They constantly were fighting among themselves. They, it, 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 it spanned different denominations. And, you know, it, it's just like, so what is that? Define, you know, reaching through that smoke, seeing through that fog, um, you know, not getting turned off by all that heat. It's hard to kind of lay hold precisely of what is in all of that. It's kind of like one of those cartoons where the characters are are fighting each other, like they're wrestling with each other. And then you see all this kind of like smoke kicked up and you don't see the characters anymore. It's just like the smoke and then... I don't know, some like weird little squiggly lines are shooting out of the smoke to indicate that they're that they're wrestling there in the dirt. And I feel like that's what fundamentalism is. <laughs> it's like who's in there exactly? Who's in what position right now? Who's, you know, who's winning, who's on who's losing on the ground? I don't know. But but that thing, that thing is fundamentalism and and how you define it exactly, I don't know. Now historians Martin Marty, Scott Appleby, published this five-volume set I have on my desk here. It's on fundamentalism. It was written in the 1990s, or published in the 1990s. And they admitted that they spent, of their five research years, they spent two whole years just thinking about the word fundamentalism and just saying, is there a better word out there? Spoiler alert, there wasn't. Now, historically speaking, we can start with this. Capital F 
fundamentalism describes a movement of predominantly American evangelicals in the early 1900s who responded to theological liberalism by militantly defending what they believed to be the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And it was during this movement that the word fundamentalism was coined. Now, of course, there were, uh, there were fundamentalists who existed before the word was coined. This movement didn't appear out of nowhere. But that's basically it. When we talk about capital F fundamentalism, we're talking about this movement in America at this time. But the word fundamentalism has also been used by people like Martin Marty and Scott Appleby to describe Muslims and Hindus and others who seem just as stubborn, just as angry about the liberalizing, globalizing forces that they are facing in the world. Some of them even commit acts of terrorism in order to, I guess, arrest the progress which this modern, secular, whatever is making in the world. And so I think Marty and Appleby define fundamentalism. And it's, it's really a collection of essays from a, a diverse group of people, so I don't want to put too fine of a point on this. But, but fundamentalism, the, the working definition for them is, is a militant rejection of the modern, secular world, basically. So that could apply to, to non-religious people, even though in this, these five volumes they chose to write about religious fundamentalists. And already you can see the, the range of what we're talking about here. A fundamentalist could be a Bible-thumping Donald Gray Barnhouse, or it could be Osama bin Laden. This is a pretty broad net. Although, if Donald Gray Barnhouse and Osama bin Laden were both caught in the same net, you almost feel sorry for bin Laden. Fundamentalism can also be a theological description, which is often defined by five, sometimes more, core beliefs like the inerrancy and verbal inspiration of the Bible, the existence of miracles, Jesus' bodily resurrection, the virgin birth, and Jesus' substitutionary atonement. These five doctrines were declared essential, not by some conclave of fundamentalists who gathered to hash all this out in the 1920s, but by the Presbyterian General Assembly in 1910. Many fundamentalists would later adopt these five doctrines as the theological standard of the movement, right? This is what we're fighting for. But they would often modify them by adding or combining points to meet whatever they considered to be the, the essential doctrines. Some, for instance, later on, added the premillennial return of Jesus instead of miracles. Fundamentalists can also be a pejorative description that fits anyone who seems grumpy and maybe overcommitted to some illiberal cause. I remember back when I had uh, America Online, back in those AOL days, oh yeah, that dial-up internet. I'm not going to make that sound for you. It is trauma-inducing. But anyways, back when I had AOL, I would go into a Roman Catholic chat room for some mm, polite interfaith dialogue. Let's go with that. And one Catholic lady in there who went by the screen name Lady Dragon, which only occurred to me as being funny as an Adventist later on, because of, anyways, Adventist and Revelation, but... She always called me, uh, and this Baptist guy that also went in there, the fundamentalist. She actually said the fundies. The fundies are here. And I had no idea what that term meant. It was probably the first time in my life that I ever heard it uh, like applied to me or to somebody I know or anything like that. And in, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure she meant it purely as an insult. Like I was some uncultured religious nut. I mean, I was an uncultured religious nut back then, but what I'm telling you is that my first encounter with the word fundamentalist was an attempt to other me or to insult me. Now, dictionary definitions, our go-to, are completely useless here. 
I mean, Britannica defines fundamentalism as, quote, a type of conservative religious movement characterized by the advocacy of strict conformity to sacred text, end quote. I mean, basically, a religious conservative. I, this, this could apply to most monotheistic religious people, perhaps throughout history. It doesn't explain why we didn't seem to need this word until the beginning of the 20th century in America, however. And that's really the challenge of using this word fundamentalist, of trying to define it, because it often ends up including a bunch of people throughout history who wouldn't consider themselves fundamentalists at all. You know, <laughs> just can you imagine trying to have a conversation with Al-Qaeda or... ISIS or something and saying, hey, you guys are fundamentalists. And they say, what's that? And then you describe this movement, you know, in the 19 teens and 1920s in America. And <laughs> I just have a feeling they're going to look at you and be like, what are you talking about? We have, you know, we have nothing in common with them. And, and, and certainly they do have some things in common. But the challenge is so often the definitions are so imprecise that they just, it's like a shotgun approach. They just hit people to whom the word fundamentalist, like no reasonable person would say that they ought to be included in this definition. So anyways, whatever definition we choose, I believe that our first principle is that it has to honor the historical event of the fundamentalist movement. I think that's a good test for our definition. I'm not sure it makes sense to use a word that would catch Donald Gray Barnhouse, Osama bin Laden, and maybe some secular anti-modernist up in the same net. I can definitely see why people like Martin and Appleby see the similarities between Muslims fighting globalism and Christians fighting modernism. But I think using fundamentalists to apply to both groups overwhelms its historical meaning. Because if you allow the meaning to broaden so much that it would no longer make sense to the people who first coined it, then I, I don't think we have a useful word, at least not in a historical sense. It would be like looking at the Protestant Reformation and using the word Lutheran to describe everybody. Lutheran and his followers are Lutheran because they oppose the Roman Church and they emphasize certain core doctrines. Oh, but look at these other reformers, this John Calvin guy. He's also against the Roman Church and is also emphasizing certain core doctrines. So, oh, wait, here we have this Menno Simmons guy. Well, these all must be Lutherans. Oh, look, if you use Lutheran to describe all Protestants, then the word no longer accurately describes actual Lutherans. I imagine we just need a new word to describe religious people who are against the secular Western order of things, which has come to prevail in the last hundred plus years. Because within that group, you'll definitely find fundamentalists and you'll definitely find others. But to use fundamentalists to describe anyone who is militantly against the modern secular world just moves the meaning from describing one thing to describing another. So get your own word, dude. Whatever definition we choose, I believe it must do justice to the historical movement known as fundamentalism. Now, the theological definition is attractive because, well, the Presbyterian General Assembly so helpfully defined the essential doctrines for us, and because later fundamentalist groups would champion their own essential doctrines, which were pretty similar. It seems like an open and shut case then, right? Fundamentalists have defined fundamentalism for us. The problem is that these five doctrines are not unique to fundamentalists. They are definitely 
modern Christian articulations of doctrine, especially inerrancy, but you will find that many Christians throughout history believed in the bodily resurrection, in the existence of miracles, and so on. There would be agreement, at least in the broad meaning of these doctrines, and so I don't think theology alone defines fundamentalism. And fundamentalists, by the way, would have agreed with this statement. They didn't think that they were creating anything new. They believed that they were defending what good Christians had always believed. Besides, fundamentalists themselves couldn't fully agree on what was truly fundamental to the Christian faith. So which version of the five fundamental doctrines do you use to define fundamentalists? Should we incorporate all the variations, and maybe that adds up to 10 or 12 or 15 fundamental doctrines? As Michael Campbell points out in 1922, Avenus had their own list of fundamental doctrines, the shortest of which had 19 fundamental beliefs. So how do you make sense of this mess? Which doctrines define fundamentalism exactly? And might I say, which doctrines define fundamentalism and only fundamentalism exactly? It's unclear to what degree these doctrinal markers were even accurate. Carl F.H. Henry, one of those new evangelicals reacting to both fundamentalism and modernism, claimed that the dictation theory of inspiration, as he put it, wasn't actually shared by all fundamentalists, but was popularly ascribed to them. Now, I haven't studied this enough to know whether that is true. Dictation theory was certainly held by a lot of fundamentalists. But Henry might be right that it was overstated. So I don't think theology is the way to define fundamentalism, at least not theology alone. These five doctrines, in whatever configuration they're found, are just shared by too many Christians around the world and throughout history, Christians who would never consider themselves fundamentalists and might even have argued against it. I also think the historical definition of fundamentalism is flawed because I don't think it accounts for the fact that similar phenomena have happened in other non-evangelical religious groups. I'm still not comfortable with broadening the word fundamentalist to include basically anyone who is militantly anti-modern, but I do think it is broader than just this historical movement at this particular time. But where to draw those lines, I don't know. It's clear that fundamentalism was far more influential than its brief and chaotic day on the stage as a visible movement, and any definition needs to allow for the fact that it changes over time, that it was more than just a historical movement. Anyways, at its heart, fundamentalism was one conservative Protestant reaction to the liberal Protestant theology that was largely being exported from Germany in the late, or actually throughout the 19th century, Protestants saw this liberal theology as a threat and reacted by emphasizing what they believed to be essential theological doctrines. Never mind that they didn't all agree on what doctrines were essential, although maybe they mostly agreed. Perfect agreement wasn't the point. The point is that we believe biblical Christianity is under attack by these liberal Christians, and we are going to fight back to defend our faith. It is, I believe, that spirit that makes a fundamentalist. It's that fighting spirit, not mere opposition to modernism, but a willingness to fight. Now, this theological liberalism got folded in with the broader threat of modernism, which included evolution and, and represented an existential threat, not just to conservative Christians, but to, well, Western civilization itself. 
Modernism, said the president of the Moody Bible Institute back then, quote, is a revolt against the God of Christianity and is the foe of good government, end quote. Fundamentalists treated all of modernism as a spiritual problem because, well, all of these cultural, philosophical, musical, economic, and yes, religious ideas in modernism had implications for conservative evangelical Christians. Fundamentalists felt overwhelmed and besieged, and so George Marsden defines fundamentalism as, quote, militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism, end quote. And I think that's as good as any definition, at least to start with. The problem I think some people fall into is in taking that word modernist to mean modern, as if fundamentalists opposed any kind of change and they wanted to continue living in some bygone era. That is a huge mistake. Modernism was a broad but a very particular word to fundamentalists and others of their day. The Pope even released an encyclical condemning aspects of modernism. Okay, It wasn't just fundamentalists who were against modernism. What made fundamentalists fundamentalists, in my opinion, is how they were against modernism. Pioneering Adventists were deeply concerned about things like worldliness and evolution and what became known as the historical critical method, but they weren't, well, weren't always militant about it, <laughs> at least not in the, in the later fundamentalist sense. Returning to Marsden's definition, the word anti-modernist tells us that the fundamentalists were reacting to modernism, and so I think pioneering Adventists wouldn't qualify as fundamentalists because this modernism had yet to reach America's shores as a distinct thing until the late 19th and early 20th century. The fundamentalist movement was Protestant, it's true, and it was specifically evangelical, yes. The word evangelical gives us another range of theological doctrines which characterize the fundamentalist coalition of Christians. It really wasn't about these particular five essential doctrines or even ten. It was really a defense of what they saw as uh, the, the important parts of evangelical Protestantism in general. And you can kind of pick and choose a little bit of what's important in evangelical Protestantism. It was really a defense of evangelical Protestantism in general, even if not all evangelicals were fundamentalists. And that's why it didn't matter if different fundamentalist groups precisely agreed on what the fundamentalists were or not. Now, I do have two quibbles with Marzen's definition. First, the word anti-modernist. I think Nick Miller and others have shown that both fundamentalists and liberals shared a foundationalist philosophical underpinning. In other words, fundamentalists and modernists were, were caught up in the same philosophical framework as it related to the certainty of knowledge. They both believed we can we can absolutely know. And 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 so fundamentalism was definitely anti-modernist in some respects, but it was itself a creation of this modern uh, wave, I guess, at least philosophically. Now, my second quibble is that I think I need to know more about how other Protestant evangelicals re reacted to modernism before I can sign off on this definition. Was the only difference between fundamentalists and some others the fact that fundamentalists were militant and some were not? I think that word militant needs to be uh, more carefully defined. What is that? It wasn't just that they were they felt more strongly than other people about modernism. They also kind of organized their defense. They also militated differently than others. It wasn't just that they were militant and others simply resisted modernism. It's that that militancy took a distinct form. And maybe we can talk about that some other time. 
So I suspect there's more nuance to this story, but I, nevertheless, I think Marzin's definition is, is pretty good for a start. Now, what does all this mean? Well, it means I don't believe that Ellen White was a fundamentalist. She was definitely a conservative, evangelical-type Christian who probably would have agreed with most of the things fundamentalists were saying, but not all, and maybe especially on inerrancy. Nor was Ellen White militant. I believe fundamentalist was a dis fundamentalism rather was a distinct historical coalition of evangelical Christians that were united against modernism. But the real glue of the movement, the thing that makes fundamentalist fundamentalist, is that aggressive defense of Protestant evangelical Christianity in reaction to the perceived threat of modernism. That's what's fundamental about fundamentalism. Now that that militancy takes on a few qualities. And these qualities are not always universal among fundamentalists, but they, they kind of became associated with the movement. Qualities like um, that, that fundamentalists could be deeply anti-intellectual. Right? If you went to a certain school, um, we're gonna, you know, if especially if it's known for liberalism, right? Like we, we're not gonna do this. Uh, we're not gonna support you. We're gonna be suspicious of you. Uh, one one fundamentalist famously boasted that he didn't read books. At all. <laughs> That's not how the movement started out, by the way, but it's how it ended, at least in some circles. Um, fundamentalist work in theology was often narrowly focused on defending the Bible from modernism rather than actually understanding the Bible. And I think that's really, really important. There wasn't a curiosity to know necessarily what the Bible teaches. They believed that they knew what the Bible teach, taught, rather, and they were going to aggressively defend that. But I don't think fundamentalists were aware of how that theology changed because of modernism. Okay, they included miracles in that original top five list of essential doctrines. I mean, find me a creed in Christian history that, that puts miracles somewhere in the top five of the most essential things that Christians believe in. No, the only reason why miracles was promoted to the top five is because modernists were largely anti-supernatural. You know, there is no miracles. These things can't happen. So in response to that, fundamentalists say, well, yes, they can. Now, miracles are one of our most essential doctrines. In other words, they were doing they were doing theology in conversation or in reaction to modernism. And without modernism, there is no fundamentalism. It was not a positive religious movement. It was a reaction, a particular reaction at some point in history. And later, new evangelicals like Carl Henry understood this. Looking back, writing in 1957, Carl Henry wrote, the, quote, impression was given that ethics need only involve a spirit of negation, abstinence from externals such as smoking or, and card playing. The more subtle and dangerous sins of the spirit and mind receive scant attention. Failure to develop a system of Christian ethics for all phases of life proved harmful, end quote. Now, Henry was a broad-minded conservative evangelical. He chastised fundamentalists for reacting so strongly against the social gospel that they confined the gospel to just personal evangelism. On the contrary, Henry wrote in 1965 that an evangelical, quote, should be concerned about the relations between nations and about minority rights. There is no reason at all why evangelical Christians should not engage energetically in projecting social structures that promote the interests of justice in every public realm. 
Social justice is the need of the individual whose dignity as a person is at stake and of society and culture, which would soon collapse without it, end quote. So Henry was no quack evangelical, if you don't know. He was an evangelical power player, the first editor of Christianity Today, and, I should add, he had a personal relationship with some Adventist church leaders. Here he is, in the decade of the civil rights movement, arguing that evangelicals should be interested in creating just social structures. It's not something you usually hear evangelicals talking about today. So this new evangelical resurgence in, after the Second World War was really evangelicals saying, we need to reclaim our faith from fundamentalists because fundamentalists have so have, have put these blinders on, have so narrowed their focus on things that they're just they're just kind of defending this one point in in the in the spiritual space against modernists. And they're not even doing that particularly well, right? Because modernism just it just kind of rolls right on by the fundamentalists right over them, right under them, right around them. And and they're just kind of in the middle of nowhere, still defending this point. And and to the exclusion of developing more broadly as Christians. Uh, Henry's first point there was, you know, they were focused on don't smoke, don't play cards, and, and, and to the point where it was all about these externals. If you don't do this, don't do this, then you're good. And Henry's like, look, I mean, there's a lot, a lot more subtle and dangerous sins of the spirit and mind that are not, you know, they're not as observable as cards and smoking and things like that. It's not that it's not that Henry was okay with smoking and card playing, okay? It's not that these new evangelicals were okay with that. It's just that we shouldn't only focus on these these easily observable external things as evidence of our of our ethical health. There are much more sinister, much more dangerous, much more subtle things out there that we need to worry about and fundamentalists are 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 focusing our attention purely on these these uh, observable areas like card playing and smoking. This is his point. It's like we need to we need to kind of re refocus here because fundamentalists have us focusing on just such these these narrow, kind of superficial or at least surface level things. And there are a lot other things, a lot of other things that we need to be worrying about as Christians that we need to be focusing on that we need to be studying, including projecting these social structures that promote the interests of justice in every public realm, as he put it including social justice. And, and fundamentalists would reject social justice because, well, that sounds a little bit too much like the social gospel, which is a, um, you know, a, a, a hallmark of modernism in the early 20th century, the social gospel, that we need to take the gospel to the poor, and the gospel is seen through feeding them and clothing them and, and, and so forth. Like, that's what it means to preach the gospel, is to do these things. And there was kind of, in the, in the modernist camp, a de-emphasis on repentance and a de-emphasis on sin as a as a condition and it was more about kind of meeting these felt needs i'm not trying to over i know i'm really oversimplifying the social gospel but but this is how fundamentalists saw it they're like no we need to preach repentance we need to have public evangelism like the, the people's spiritual well-being is more important than their physical well-being and they kind of responded to the social gospel by going so far to the other side that they weren't they didn't really have any social programs whatsoever that the gospel didn't seem to have any implications for society other than uh, spiritually 
And so this is Henry's trying to pull evangelicals out of fundamentalism and say, you know, no, we should, as Christians, care about what happens in society beyond mere public evangelism. There are other things that we need to be focusing on as well. And, and fundamentalism has just kind of overly narrowed our focus here. Now, this dynamic between fundamentalists and new evangelicals will help you understand, I think, if you're Adventist, the Adventism of your own childhood as well. Because Francis David Nickel, aha, at long last, editor of the Review, whom we've been talking about in the past few episodes, uh, at least before QOD, responded to the civil rights movement differently than Carl Henry. Now, Samuel London quotes Nickel as saying, in this very influential or very important uh, editorial that he wrote, that pastors supporting the civil rights movement are sometimes supporting the social gospel. This is something Nickel believed. And um, Nickel writes, quote, Against the emphasis on the social gospel, we, in common with all conservative religious groups, have consistently raised our voices, and rightly so, end quote. Now, of course, Nickel, it should be said, offered sympathy for, quote, those underprivileged, end quote, acknowledging that, quote, it has led us to a more quiet and distinctly avenous approach to the problem, end quote. Nichols saw the choices before the church is either embracing the social gospel, right, that hallmark of modernist Christians, or else rejecting it and focusing on public evangelism as the cure for all social ills. And this is a, a very common decades, decades-long explanation of, of some of these fundamentalist Adventists of why we can't support civil rights or why we can't support, uh, you know, regional black conferences or whatever it may be. It's because, you know, if everyone just believed in the gospel, then we wouldn't have these problems, right? Black and white would worship together. They would love each other, you know, whatever. All of our problems would be solved. We wouldn't be having riots, race riots. We wouldn't be having union riots. We wouldn't be having all this, this turmoil because the gospel brings peace and it brings reconciliation and you know, I, they're always short on explaining exactly how that happens or how that works, but they firmly believe that that's, that's really the solution to all of our problems. Um, so it's either uh, social gospel in Nichols' mind or it's this public evangelism is the cure for all of our social ills. Now, that's not merely a conservative perspective. It's a fundamentalist perspective. I joked earlier that liberal Christians see Christianity as divided between themselves and fundamentalists. The same thing is true in reverse, by the way. <laughs> Fundamentalists see the world as divided between themselves and liberals, right? You're either going to do it our way, and you're either going to see things the way we see things, or you're just some species of liberal. That's it. And when you put things that way, people tend to choose sides, sides they might not otherwise have chosen. But it's like, well, if, you know, these are my two options. I guess I got to pick one. But of course, fundamentalists failed to appreciate that they had other options. After all, Carl Henry could see other paths forward for evangelicals, Paths that included fixing America's structural racism, racism problem on biblical grounds, he would say, not on secular ones. But nevertheless, it's a work that evangelicals should be a part of. And so I, I just want to make sure I mention at least once in this episode that uh, fundamentalism and conservatism are, are, are separate things. You can be a conservative without being a fundamentalist. Fundamentalism is kind of a species, a subset, a type of conservative and so, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, well, you know, we, we have these conservatives in the church, and they're all fundamentalists. They're not. They're not. Fundamentalism is just a type of conservative, and 
you know, what we see with these new evangelicals, new, you know, evangelicals are conservative too. Carl Henry is conservative theologically, socially, politically, but nevertheless, he's not a fundamentalist. And so what we're, what I'm hoping, if you're a fundamentalist listening, you realize there are other options of being conservative. There are other ways to, you know, just, just because you're not a fundamentalist doesn't mean, doesn't mean the option is, well, now I have to go embrace modernism. No, there are other ways to resist modernism. There's other ways to critique modernism without being a fundamentalist. It's not this either or black or white kind of a thing. You have, there's, there's plenty of other options. There's plenty of other options. Anyways, I bring Nickel up as an example of how Adventist fundamentalism came to be so deeply ingrained into Adventism that it has become difficult to tell it apart from historic Adventism. We have inherited this lens of seeing the Bible and the world and it has shaped generations of Adventists. We don't yet know, I think, a tenth of how Adventist fundamentalism has changed the trajectory of the church. Now, if I could wrap all this up, I'd say that it seems that this conversation over Adventist fundamentalism is a conversation about how we see Adventist history. In Michael Campbell's view, so many Adventists today think Adventist fundamentalism is original Adventism. And so that there is value in peeling back the layers of fundamentalist Adventism and rediscovering our actual past as Adventists. Now, that actual past is not always some tolerant, open-minded, generous church that, that more progressive Adventists might want to see. <laughs> sometimes, we, sometimes we make this, this, this kind of assumption. It's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of dismantling this fundamentalist past. We're, we're critiquing ourselves. And, and look, you know, we see these quotes get shared on social media. It's like, look, Ellen White said this thing and this thing. It's so progressive. It's so open-minded. Yeah, um, but Ellen White would never be considered a progressive. Okay, she might not be a fundamentalist, which is how I think she was portrayed for generations. She might not be that, but she's certainly not a progressive uh, by today's standards either. Okay, so... So anyways, our, our actual past that we're rediscovering here uh, is, is not this progressive paradise, but neither is it fundamentalist, I think. Neither is it fundamentalist. So I think when we look at the past, this, this conversation between Gil and Michael has really got me thinking, how do we relate to this Adventist past? Is it something that we're kind of running from, uh, you know, that we acknowledge and say, yeah, that happened, that's unfortunate, but we're still growing is it something that we are trying to, to, to retrieve, saying, you know what, it's not as bad as people think. There's some really good stuff here that we need to reconnect with. Um, are we trying to just go back to the past and say, you know, this is when things were going pretty well. We were fairly united and, and spiritually vibrant and all these sort of things. We need to get back there in some way, shape, or form. Or, or you know, I don't think anybody would ever say we need to, like, just kind of recreate the 19th century. But we need to recover what made pioneering Adventism great again? <laughs> oh, that just kind of slipped out. Well, what can you do? Um, you know, how, how do we relate to this Adventist past? What, what's our relationship with what happened? And, and how do we see it? I'm going to assume throughout all of this that, that you're not a fan of fundamentalism. I'm not a fan of fundamentalism. I don't think it's the way to, to go about our faith. I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, I'm happy. That it's in the dustbin. We'll just put it that way. But we have Adventist fundamentalists among us who are still reacting to modernism in um, in the way that that historical fundamentalists did. They're still fighting that war, and there may not be as many of them 
as there used to be. But, you know, if you're if you suspect you might be an evidence fundamentalist and you're listening to this, I hope you understand the goal of this whole thing is not to shame you. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's just to let you know that there are other options. That the world is not neatly divided between modernists and fundamentalists and you have to pick a side. There are other ways to critique the world. There are other ways to to react. And you know, I believe that this this kind of warfare model is not helpful. It's not even just because everything that came with modernism was not bad. Nick Miller in another essay, I didn't plan on saying this, but Nick Miller in another essay says, you know, there's different there's different ways to approach the historical critical method, for instance, and and, and one of them is to accept some of the some of the methods that are being used because they're actually really helpful in understanding the Bible. So I, you know, I think that we I didn't mean to get into this moment where I'm recommending a course of action for everybody but you know I think that there's a lot to be said there about uh, kind of a more nuanced reaction to the changes that we have faced in the last hundred plus years Uh, it's, it's not a choice of either wholesale rejection or wholesale acceptance I think the healthy way forward is going to be a more nuanced navigating through this strange new world that we find ourselves in. But I do not think Ellen White was a fundamentalist. And because of that, uh, I think we can, we can, that gives us a perspective on this Adventist fundamentalist moment. And we can let those fundamentalists we know know, they may not believe us, but we can let them know that, hey, the church was conservative, but it was not fundamentalist. And so your fundamentalism is not original Adventism. And and maybe there's some conversations that can open up there. I don't know. This is just a rough draft of my thoughts. I think I've said enough. I hope at the very least this has got some juices flowing in that old head of yours. Some stuff to think about. Thank you so much for listening. I know your time is valuable. It is so important these days. I mean, where you choose to spend 50 plus minutes is i mean it's a huge honor to me that you would spend it with me so thank you thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time